So I know you think I'm like a hard, cold captain of industry type. That's not all there is. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday to you. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together we are Mance and Mitchell in Sarasota, Florida, broadcasting from Seattle. That's as if that weren't miracle enough. We are aided considerably, as always, by bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. How are you doing, Benny? Uh, doing very well. And congratulations to your Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I know you're huge fans. You know, it's it's just, I'll say this, because we have a, a very special guest we want to get on. Suzanne read the entire book. She read it to me, word for word, and I can't wait to do that. But I will say this, Benny. All right. The American sports landscape now has an additional Super Bowl trophy and ring in the possession of Tom Brady. And you and I, last week, we were saying, ah, Chiefs kingdom looking good. Got to go with the Chiefs. Here again, the lesson is learned. Never bet against Tom Brady. No, un undisputedly the greatest of all time. He is a goat in his division and league. Uh, I hate to say it, too. Never was really a fan. I was now. I guess I now am. Um, that's all I have to say. <laughs> Yes, uh, people have mixed views of yeah. Tom Brady and and the Patriot way, as it's called. I think that's what I'm hindering around. Yeah, here. I've had my issues yeah. with that, too. Mm -hmm. But Brady is the best of all time. There's no question about that. So uh, there we are. It, and past the Super Bowl, one thing I found, this may sort of you know lean us, incline us toward mm -hmm. our conversation mm -hmm. today. When the Super Bowl is over, it's my personal tradition for weal or woe to think of the year as fully underway. There's New Year's Eve, oh, all these all these wonderful resolutions. There's New Year Day with the celebration. And usually by January two or three at the latest, I've forgotten what my resolutions were. <laughs> Certainly not putting them into practice. I didn't know you made any resolutions. I don't tell you everything. Any intentions? So <laughs> any intentions? It could be an intention. Setting it intention, and then stuff happens. But by the time, it's like a, a little wake-up call. Yeah. When the Super Bowl is over, I go, okay, now we're into February, right. and I need to start taking this year seriously. And I am doing that, as a matter of fact, with self-improvement projects here and there. And that speaks to looking at life from the perspective of, is that all there is? Just this material existence we have and the pursuit of the good life in material terms. But Suzanne, there is, for any number of people, there comes a moment when the spiritual life, the spiritual essence of life intervenes and many times in a profound way so that we can't look at ourselves the way we used to do. That is true. And hence, our wonderful, wonderful guest to this, uh, this morning he wrote a book called The Other Side of Success, Money and Meaning in the Golden State. Martin Sowa is a commercial real estate entrepreneur with a diverse career as a broker, operator, and developer. He has negotiated numerous high-profile transactions in the San Francisco and Los Angeles markets, 
Soa received a BA from the University of Wisconsin and a Master of Urban Planning from San Jose State University. He currently writes and helps others execute both business and life strategies. His book, The Other Side of Success, is the unvarnished account of one man's search for meaning as his professional life is constantly challenged by the impact of love, family, religion, and race. A fascinating read, uh, Gary, and we are happy to bring on, for the first time to Manson Mitchell, Martin Sowell. Welcome to the show, Martin. Hi, Suzanne. Hi, Gary and Benny. Uh, Thanks so much for having me on. We are thrilled to have you on. We read your book, and what a fascinating life with so many elements. Gary and I thought you did a great job of pulling together all the elements of a real life, not just telling the good parts, not just telling the bad parts, but telling all of it together in a way that was very comprehensive. The the theme throughout it seems to be your work in commercial real estate. And that's kind of like the weave throughout the whole book. But there is so much else in there having to do with culture, having to do with money, having to do with uh, racism and integration and everything. We were just, uh, we we're really blown away by your book and, um, and thought you did a really fabulous job in writing it. Well, thank you. Thank you. I wanted to bring up a singular incident, and we could do that with almost countless examples in your wonderful book, which was so brilliantly written. I actually questioned for a time, Martin, I'll be honest with you, I go, he sounds like a guy with a hell of a ghostwriter. I mean, this is written with, with almost the zeal, the eloquence, <laughs> and the poignancy of a novelist. And um, so uh, if you want to cop to anything, here's your opportunity. But if you indeed wrote this, you are a masterful writer. There's no question about that. I wanted to mention to you, Martin, that one incident in particular takes me back to when I was newly arrived in Seattle, where I lived for 21 years. And I recall in October of 1989, I was, I was a new kid in town and just, you know, setting up an apartment, but I made sure I had my TV plugged in in time for the World Series. And that year, the San Francisco Giants were playing. It was the Bay Area Series, the San Francisco Giants and the Oakland A's. And I remember watching one of those games in particular with the uh, lady who was in my life at the time. And all of a sudden there was a camera shake with the game underway. And I went, uh-oh. And I said to nobody in particular, I don't think they'll be playing any more baseball tonight. And I knew the reason why. You mentioned that historic episode in your book. Yes. Uh, at that time I was... Uh... Uh, living in Oakland and working in San Francisco. So uh, there was a historic meeting between the two ball clubs in the World Series, and they called it the Bay Bridge Series. And I was uh, at uh, Candlestick Park and was just in the process of getting a couple of beers for myself and my girlfriend at the time when uh, I I suddenly saw the light standards, they were probably 100, 150 feet tall, just kind of swaying like palm trees. And it was kind of crazy because after the shaking subsided, no one quite knew what to do. And so I hurried back and I got my girlfriend and we agreed it was probably a good idea 
to get out. And at that moment, a police cruiser was uh, uh, going out into left field. And as we were uh, starting to leave, uh, they were announcing that uh, obviously it had been an earthquake and the game would be called off. And so now we're outside and we're in the parking lot and people have their radios or their portable TVs and they hear that uh, a section of the Bay Bridge has collapsed and other things going on. So there was like a big panic and unfortunately we, we got out okay, but it was, uh, it was a crazy time. I, um, I wanted to uh, mention that um, in your book, you are the son of Ukraine immigrants who moved from Ukraine to Austria and Austria to, of all places, Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. I'm from the Chicago area originally, and so I'm familiar with Wisconsin, familiar with Prairie du Chien, such a small town to uh, be settled in. And you make a decision to go into commercial real estate and move to California, which is a gigantic decision. And I think there are a lot of people who would not aim that high. And I asked myself, and I'm now asking you, this decision that you made to go into commercial real estate and move to California, how was that influenced by your parents? Did it, did it have to do with the work ethic of your parents? Did it have to do with the fact that you thought you could do anything where most people wouldn't tackle anything that big? What was the thinking that went into that uh, critical point in your life? Well, to provide some background, uh, my parents uh, grew up in Ukraine, which uh, during the 1920s and through the 1940s, and this they were they lived under the regimes of uh, Stalin and then Hitler and then Stalin again. So this was kind of the worst imaginable situation you could have. Uh, in, in hindsight, historians determined that uh, there were more civilians killed during that time period in this area than any time in human history. So just getting away and coming to America, uh, the, the, the worst imaginable here in their minds would be far better than the best imaginable what they left behind. So I had a mentality of kind of so lucky to be here and to make, try to make the most of it. And growing up, it was a little rough because we were outsiders and no one knew what a Ukrainian was and it was uh, the McCarthy era. So, uh, but I was fortunate. Uh, there was a high school on the edge of town. It was a Jesuit boarding school and quite, quite, uh, familiar in its day. You had students from other states, even other countries uh, who attended there. And I, I was fortunate enough to get in. I passed the admission test. And I found that I was among a lot of like really smart kids. <laughs> and, and by the time I graduated, I felt I could compete at a pretty high level. 
that I, I, I could do as good or better than these smart kids from everywhere. And I think that gave me kind of the impetus to, to leave that little town and uh, eventually to move to California to kind of find my own way and have the confidence that I could accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. To California by way of Chicago, from Prairie du Chien, you spent uh, some time in Chicago at a really critical period in the 1960s. And I, and I thought it was pretty interesting that you, at just the right time, you had somebody in your life that showed you how you could succeed at, again, something that not everybody is willing to take on, and that's door-to-door salesmanship. In, uh, this was in Chicago in the summer of 1968, which again, in the hindsight of history, was kind of an epochal turn uh, in everything that was happening politically and culturally in the United States. Uh, and of course, at the time, I didn't know anything. I was from <laughs> a little town and just trying to make uh, make money to go to college. And uh, there were different instances in my life where I feel like fate, F-A-T-E, fate, intervened. Yeah. And one was uh, to find a mentor. Uh, I wound up selling four brushes door-to-door. Uh, for your listeners who may not know what that is, it was an iconic door-to-door sales company that sold household products, uh, hairbrushes, things like that. And I found a mentor who really showed me the ropes. And by the end of the summer, I was one of the top salespeople. And I kept that knowledge with me for many years, but everything I learned about selling I learned that summer and it wasn't later. And I found that uh, just the objects I sold instead of hairbrushes, I sold high rise office buildings. The fundamentals were the same. So I was pretty fortunate in that respect. And the other operation of faith was, uh, this was the time when there was a draft or, um, for uh, the Vietnam War. And I had taken my physical and was 1A and was ready to ship out. And then for some reason, uh, the Congress uh, decided that they were gonna do a draft lottery. Uh, And they wound up putting little balls in the container and uh, the air would spit them out. And uh, that year I came with, they stopped, the call within two two cohorts of my birth date. And had that not happened, my life would have been a lot different too. So it, uh, it, it started clicking for me that there was more to life than meets the eye sometime. Martin, thank you for sharing that. And when people enjoy reading your book, The Other Side of Success, they will find that this was indeed a pivotal moment for you. Yes. I recall 
signing up for selective service, but I did so after I turned 18 in 1972. So I, I have some uh, wear on my uh, treads there, but I remember doing that. And prior to that, being in high school, I had the clear sense that it was not going to be an issue for me. President Nixon had talked about Vietnamization, which became a thing that became a policy goal. And then he created the all-volunteer armed forces. The draft lottery stopped it was a year or two before I would have been eligible for it. And then I don't know how my birthday would have turned up because they weren't having that anymore. But it, it calls to mind the sense I had that it's going to be okay. I live in Orange County. I'm a good Nixon Republican in the making at 18. My first vote I ever cast a couple of months after my birthday was for Nixon and Agnew. And I thought everything was going to be peachy keen after that. And that being the case, I looked at those people who had to make a very sheer decision about the direction of their life at that time. And I've met some since. And so this is my opportunity, Martin, to reflect on that with you and to state my conviction that ready to ship out as a phrase was a matter of degree for hundreds of thousands of young men at that time, including yourself. And it makes me want to ask you, when you say ready to ship out, were you stealing yourself to turn and face life in the jungle or on the perimeter of that and to engage in a war that you may or may not have endorsed, but that decision was out of your hands unless you were prepared to burn your draft card or go to Canada? Uh, I think it's at some point, anything is always in your hands to the extent that it's how you respond to a given situation. And I gave it a lot of thought. Uh, obviously, <laughs> it was a life-altering decision. And I decided that I would go if called. Uh, I, I went on to college and wasn't called, but I was ready to go. And it was based on the way I had grown up. And what my parents had seen, or the little that I knew at that time that they had seen. They lived under two dictatorships, and uh, the, the idea of communism spreading throughout the world uh, was, to me, just an abhorrent thought. And for that reason alone, I uh, was ready to go. Thank you for sharing that. You were ready yeah. to go. I, I've met men who went and hardly wanted to be there. And I met a couple of summers ago, a gentleman in Maine who worked for as a uh, subcontractor for a, a defense production company and was necessary to the war effort. And that's how he stayed out of going to Vietnam. He just kept doing what he was already doing. But if that had come to an end, he told me he had said to his mother, now he lived in Maine. And he said to his mother, if this goes the wrong way, you can find me in Canada. You don't even need a passport back in the day there. So come visit me there. But if this comes down, I'm going up to Canada. You can be sure of that. Fortunately, it turned out that he did not have to do that. And my heart still pains me to think of 
the guys that had to, and some women too, but mainly the guys who had to make a decision about whether they were going to remove themselves from the America they loved and scarcely recognized anymore politically to go to a place that threatened them in the most dire way with people back home who loved them, who cared for them, and who would worry every second of every day about what was happening to them. I mean, that's no wonder we have documentaries like the one from Ken Burns, so brilliantly done, and, and novels have been written and endless essays about what that meant to people who faced that. This is a real existential crisis, and you, Martin, seem to be a gentleman who time and time again in your storied life had to face very difficult circumstances and come out of it okay on the other side. The... Uh... The novelist Yale Doctorow uh, once described writing as driving at night in the fog. And you can't see beyond your headlights, but if you're careful and make, make the right decisions, you can still get to your destination. And I, I think that's an apt description of life. At the time it's happening, you don't have the the, the global context or the cosmic context or anything. You're, you're trying to move from one moment to the next and you're under duress and you have to make choices and respond to situations which frequently there isn't a good and a bad, but just degrees of bad. And life is a testing ground and that's kind of how I see it. Very good. When you were selling a Fuller Brush door-to-door off Belmont Avenue, my grandparents were living just off Belmont Avenue, and I kind of smiled because I thought, who knows, maybe Martin went to my <laughs> grandparents' house and tried to sell them Fuller Brush. Excellent. It's entirely possible. But it's interesting that that was a, a defining moment because I – talked to another gentleman that I worked with in uh, residential real estate decades ago who was selling cars and he was selling one car every week and then somebody talked him into getting into the real estate game and so he came over to our little office and he started selling one house a week much to the entire office's amazement And they were asking him how he was doing that. And he said, um, well, I I sold a car a week, so I figured I should be able to sell a house a week. He was number one in the office because he didn't know that he wasn't supposed to sell a house a week and, and be the top guy in the office. And when you're talking about the confidence that you got in your uh, parochial school uh, upbringing, and then having this lesson that you learned uh, selling Fuller Brush, you subsequently went to college and then chose, of all things, commercial real estate. And I know but the difference between residential and commercial real estate, because I, I did some administrative work for some commercial realtors, is that your closings are few and far between. You have very big paydays, but it can take years to put that together. And you have to be able to live in the meantime somehow. So it kind of goes back to the question that I had before. Here you are, little town in Wisconsin, 
you get a you get a little taste of the city going to Chicago, and then you say, "I'm going to go out to California." I mean that that to me that's like really grabbing for the brass ring to be in the Midwest and say, I'm gonna sell commercial real estate in California. And so I wanted to get a sense about how that decision came about. Well, there's a little detour. Uh, I left for California and uh, again, in some cases, I mean, I would think things through, but at the end of the day, uh, I just would rely on my gut and what I call my visceral experience. Uh, and I went out to California and I, I didn't get into commercial real estate right away. I got a job as a city planner and uh, was living at the time in uh, Oakland and commuting to San Jose to school uh, to get my graduate degree. And uh, this was 1978. And uh, my then wife was pregnant with our daughter and I was dead broke. And I would man the zoning counter at San Jose. And one day a developer walked in and he was mad because of some restrictions the uh, planning department was imposing on his project. And he was yelling at me and he had a big gold medallion I figured cost more than a month's salary for me. And I just said, this is ridiculous. And I, I, I went home and told my wife I was going to quit. And she wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> and she asked how I was going to continue to support the family. And I said, well, I'll figure, I'll figure something out. So that was my start in commercial real estate. Like your friend, uh, I looked around and saw that commercial real estate involves selling big buildings and therefore it must be the biggest commissions and why not? So again, there was the lack, lack of any <laughs> critical understanding, but just the willingness to try it. And that's how I started. And the early going was rough. I wound up getting credit cards to pay the bills and uh, I was kiting credit cards until almost a year later, I got my first check and then kind of the rest is history. We were saying at the outset that your real estate career is the thread that is throughout this book, what happens from beginning to end. But also there is this very interesting story of your love life. You were married several times and your first wife, I said to myself, how the heck did that ever happen? Because you yourself are an immigrant, and then you get into a completely different culture in the United States, and one that seemed to have embraced you. And so I wanted you to say a little bit about your first marriage. Well, uh, my, my wife, was a full-blooded Choctaw, a Native American. And uh, it's you have to kind of know what the times were like back then. This was in the 1970s and Oakland, uh, ethnically and racially, was going through a lot of changes. The black population was on the verge of exceeding the white population. 
there was always a historic uh, Chinese community. Vietnamese refugees were immigrating after the Vietnam War. Uh, immigrants were coming from Mexico. Uh, so it was, I don't want to say melting pot, because that connotes kind of a harmonious relationship. It was a violent city as well. But there was a lot going on. The, the sports teams, the A's won the World Series, the Warriors won the NBA championship, uh, the Raiders won the Super Bowl. Uh, it was just a lot going on. So I met my future wife uh, at a bar in Jack London Square, which at that time was the popular hangout in Oakland. And we, we hit it off and um, again, I made a decision on the gut that this is the woman I'm going to marry. So I, I can't explain it, Suzanne. <laughs> and the unexplainable is that intersection where the life we think we are living is, it gets crossways with life as in life with a capital L, that life which intervenes and reveals to us a spirituality underneath it all, as far as I'm concerned. We would love to get into that aspect of your life. Folks, you've been loyal to us. We have a pretty high TSA rating, time, TSL rather, TSL, uh, time spent listening. We're always grateful for that. And this is one time where don't go anywhere. Stick around because you're going to hear some amazing stuff on the other side of a short break. We are talking with Martin Soa. His book is called The Other Side of Success. Money and Meaning in the Golden State, a memoir. It's the kind of memoir that if we had it in our power, Martin, we would be granting you an honorary PhD in the philosophy of living because there's so much to be gleaned from reading your wonderfully written book. It's a real page turner and there are places where it gets dark and places where it gets deep and we're grateful to share the journey with you. Let us take a couple of minutes, move the economy forward and then more with Martin Soa on Manson Mitchell, right here at the epicenter of Alternative Talk in Seattle, 11.50 a.m. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com. Or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. Five things you need to know about measles in 30 seconds. The vaccine was developed in 1963, and measles became rare in the U.S. But low vaccination rates are now causing outbreaks that may put you at risk. Measles is highly contagious and spreads easily when an infected person breathes or coughs. Measles can have serious complications and can be deadly. It's also easy to prevent with a vaccine that's safe and effective. Please make sure you and your loved ones are vaccinated. Learn more at nfid.org slash measles. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed Martin Soa for the first time with his fascinating life story called The Other Side of Success, a tale of mastery and mystery. On Saturday, Catherine Alice returns with her annual visit to tell us unusual ways that couples have gotten together and how you can do that even in a pandemic. Bringing you fascinating talk one hour at a time since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Get inspired. 
every hour right here on Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest, Martin Soa. He's the author of The Other Side of Success, Money and Meaning in the Golden State. Martin, can I assume that you can get this uh, book anywhere that fine books are sold? Uh, Suzanne, it's available online, obviously, with Amazon and Barnes & Noble and other major booksellers. There is a print paperback uh, version. There's a hard cover and then there's also an ebook and the ebook can be instantly downloaded with a click and your listeners can start reading instantly. I also have a website, uh, martinsawa.com and uh, that gives a little bit more background about the book and, uh, and also you can click a button there and be directed to the bookseller of your choice. So I also want to go ahead and spell your name, Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, and your last name is S-A-W-A. And am am I pronouncing it right? Is Sawa or is it Sawa? It's uh, Sawa. Sawa. Okay. I I think I misheard it from uh, your publicist. So I I want to make sure that we get that right. So S-A-W-A, martinsawa.com to get the uh, information that you would like to, as well as available in all the bookstores. So Absolutely. It was no accident, Martin, that we played the uh, the song Shakedown Street by Grateful Dead circa 1978 <laughs> there for a reason. Where you lived, where you began making big money, where you met a variety of people, a variety of women, quite frankly, and married well, married for love, married in a state of enchantment as I read the book. I would like to turn to that now, if you would, sir, because what happened to you and to your lovely mate there opened up a pathway that makes me want to say that life decided to just grab you by by the collar and shake you up so hard that all your preconceptions were shaken off and you were faced with the bare realities of life and death and prompted to seek deeper meaning. That was the most moving passage of the book that we read. Would you share that with our listeners, please? Yeah, a little bit about Anita and how Anita was as a person, and then um, and then what what got you interested in visiting a psychic? Uh, I met my second wife, Anita. Uh, my first wife and I we had divorced uh, years earlier. And this was uh, 1991. And again, I was in Oakland and uh, working in San Francisco. And she was a black woman. Uh, She grew up in the rural South on the outskirts of uh, Mobile, Alabama. And like me, uh, boarded the bus for California uh, out of high school and never looked back. So uh, I was fortunate enough to women that I met in my life, and for that matter, the uh, friends I made, uh, these were people that kind of, I don't want to say thought like I did, uh, but were were serious. I mean, they were fun-loving, but they were out to get ahead in life, and they had good uh, BS detectors and didn't buy into, you know, a lot of the noise that's always out there. So, um, but with Anita, I I got a little bit more than I was expecting. And uh, after we met and 
lived together and then married, I discovered that she had what I would call some special abilities. And she was uh, religious. Her mother was Baptist and literally built a little church with her own hands with the help of her parish. Uh, but Anita kind of shunned the ritual, but she read the Bible every night and she did her own exegesis and uh, wrote these explanatory texts and really uh, walked the walk. So, and not to paint the picture of a somber individual, she was like really, she loved to party and uh, it just had a lot of friends and a social circle that kind of revolved around her. But her her abilities, um, yeah, I, I would notice them and I would just write it off as coincidence or a little strange, but uh, you know, one day she answered the phone and it never even rang and started talking to her sister. Uh, you know, on another occasion, we go to like the supermarket and I'd be waiting in the car. And when she'd come out, uh, you know, a person would approach her frequently, looked like almost a homeless person or a woman in tatters. And they would talk for 10, 15 minutes and she'd come back to the car and I'd say, who was that? She said, so that was an angel giving me advice. And we met characters like imps, uh, people, what I call people from the other side of the world of the unseen. And it just after time, there was enough incidents that I, I had a real respect for, you know, what, uh, what her abilities were. Uh, and then we uh, went through, uh, we, we moved to Los Angeles, uh, where I lived for a few years, and went, went through a rough patch in our relationship, and then started that healing process. And again, it was for some unknown reason. I call it fate, but at the time, you, you don't know what it is. And something made me go to a psychic presentation and it was at the Hollywood Holiday Inn and I convinced Anita to go and she was uh, hesitant uh, because notwithstanding you know her abilities uh, the Bible deals harshly with psychics and sorcerers and spiritists and it just didn't fit into her worldview. And I was uh, a hardened skeptic. And I, you know, I said, just come on, it'll be fun, you know. And so we went and we met Mary Jo. And I didn't know what to expect. We were, there was maybe 30 people in a conference room at the hotel. And there was a stool in the front and this woman comes out. And she looks like a suburban housewife, which she in fact was and is cheerful and sits down and just says, I'm Mary Jo and I'm gonna go into trance and I'll talk to you in that way. Uh, so we thought it was kind of funny and her, her voice changes and becomes what I would call this disembodied Irish brogue. And I'm like elbowing Anita and she's just 
kind of rolling her eyes. And then Mary Jo starts talking, uh, and she talks to the first person in the front row and reveals uh, an intimate secret from their life, which you could tell the, the person just went into shock. And then she would quickly give them uh, tips on how they could improve situations they were dealing with and kind of directing them you know, on, the, on the path of working through things. Uh, well, by the time we got, she got to us, like the whole audience is fidgeting because none of them can believe what they heard about themselves. And uh, she told Anita uh, about a relationship with her brother who had passed away many years ago and details of that, which I didn't even know. And when she got to me, she was took it easy on me because I was expecting her to reveal all my darkest secrets. And she just mentioned the health issue I was dealing with and kind of moved on. So, well, we left and neither of us were speaking, which is like speechless. And we go into the garage where we parked and the guy in the first role, the first person Mary Jo talked to, we could see him like, hurrying toward his car, he gets in, he puts the car in reverse mistakenly, backs up into one of the concrete columns, you know, smashes the back of his car and then just uh, drives off uh, crazily. And it was, it was impactful. I, I didn't know what I had just seen and heard or where it came from, but it was something at that moment in that time that I said, I need to find out more about this. And you did. You maintained a relationship with Mary Jo for a long time. And one of the things that Mary Jo told you that, um, you know, Gary and I have heard before, because we've interviewed a lot of psychic mediums on our show, is that Mary Jo did not want you using her as a crutch, you know, check in from time to time, and I'll, I'll help you with you know, whatever may be up, but she didn't want you to be dependent upon her for everything, you know, go live your life and then check in with me once in a while. And you did that. And, um, and then you, you really had a reason to check in with her at one point that that was very critical. Yeah, coming from sales, obviously, that was <laughs> something that cemented my belief. Uh, she wasn't really pushing what she had to sell and just cautioned against overuse. And uh, and I, I, I spent quite a bit of time researching psychics historically, and I subscribed to Skeptic Magazine. Uh, I studied stage magic, and yeah, I went through all of that, and and I still came out at the other end believing, not all, but a, a tiny, a tiny fraction of people who identify themselves as psychics or intuitives have uh, special gifts, and they're unexplainable, but if they work, it's something I'm, I'm certainly going to take heed of. So. Mary Jo and I, we uh, developed not just, uh, but we developed a friendship relationship. And uh, in 2002, 
for one night. We're back, Anita and I are back in the San Francisco Bay Area at this time, and again, living living in the Oakland Hills. Um, we were going out to dinner with some friends, and it was we're late, and Anita was still getting ready. And I, um, I called out to her and, and didn't hear anything. And then I went and tried to get in the bathroom and the door wouldn't move. And then I pushed in and there was Anita laying on the floor naked. Uh, she was put, had been putting her makeup on. And uh, my life changed at that, at that moment. Um, you know, I pulled her out and called 911. They tried to resuscitate her, but she was, you know, they did a cold blue. And and two hours later, the coroner wheeled her out. And she was gone just like that. So there's, there's nothing to prepare one for something like that. Yes. And uh, so... Yeah, here, here you yeah, are. After that, I. Yeah. You're, you're somebody who uh, have, made some very important decisions in your life, one after the other. And I, and I would imagine that it felt like you had a certain amount of control over your life. You were successful in San Francisco. You spent some time in Southern California. You went back to San Francisco. And it seemed like, you know, your decisions and your destiny were pretty much in your hands. And at that moment, that would have really shaken your worldview because you just never saw that coming. There was no hint that she was in any kind of, you know, physical distress um, seemed healthy enough. And then to just quite suddenly, very suddenly die, um, was, uh, quite the shock. Did the other thing is that she wasn't just wife and lover, but had become my spiritual mentor and sort of my ongoing connection with the world of the unseen, which by now I felt was a genuine part of, you know, what we might call reality. And so it was just, it was just inconceivable to me that she could just drop dead. And uh, in the days following, I got, it got pretty dark. And, you know, I thought about different ways I could, you know, end things. And fortunately, my daughter, and, and who, with whom I had a very close relationship all my life, uh, kept checking in on me and kept checking in on me. And, and then I, you know, tried some grief therapy and some other things. And, uh, but it was ultimately Mary Jo. Uh, I, I called her not too long after Nita dropped out. And I, I didn't tell her anything. And she, she always would, before we started the session, say, yeah, I don't want you to talk only answer yes or no if if I ask you a question. So she she already knew in, that Anita had passed and explained what had happened yeah, in spiritual terms. Uh, I was like her project, but she had the chance to grab the brass ring and graduate and go on to the next level in the soul's journey. And she took it. Uh, and 
then Mary Jo said, I don't want you calling me back for a while. I want you to deal with the material plane, get, get, get your life back together, and then we'll talk. And then, so it was then months later again that I had the courage to call her. And uh, if you guys have interviewed psychics, uh, I, I think you know kind of how the process works. They, they get images, and these could be numbers or letters or uh, faces of people or whatnot. And then they kind of try to process that and put it in human language. So they're like a radio and they're a channel. And sometimes the reception is good, sometimes not so good. But they're a channel uh, for communication with people who, you know, have uh, physically died. And it was in that conversation and Anita just kind of came to the foreground because you can't, the, the medium can't guarantee who's going to show up. And it often is not who you are hoping it is, but somebody who maybe even had minimal contact with in your life. And there's some lesson there, but Anita kind of uh, came to the forefront right away. And, uh, and there's always some description of some astonishing secret that no one else could possibly know. To, to validate, again, with a, a skilled intuitive. And she assured me that she still loved me and would always be there for me. And so at that point, I believe our relationship survived a physical death. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, our listeners, I think, are are smiling along with me in one respect, and that is you suggest that we talk to psychics or mediums. Do we talk to psychics? We talk to psychics on this show more often than Maury Povich exclaims, he is not the father. <laughs> so, <laughs> we are well aware of the milieu, sir. <laughs> and that's why I wanted to make sure to include this, because when it comes to evidential mediumship, a couple of things. First of all, I accept it. I can't prove any of this stuff, but I've had amazing uh, I've had amazing examples sitting down with mediums who told me not to talk. You're not going to know if I'm for real if you're doing the talking, one told me a long time ago, and then proceeded to give me family details that there was no objective way she could know. And so she wasn't cold reading me because I wasn't talking. She hushed me. There, so there's that. And then there's also the question that people um, who have lost loved ones, spouses, parents, children, there will say, and that is, someone came through either right away or at least as often after a time. And that's the thing that, that I'm curious about, because if someone is of sufficient spiritual maturity, maybe they're ready to come through and say, sorry, this is how it had to happen. This is why I did this. Please go on. I'm with you. I'll always be a thought away. These are the sorts of things I hear. And there are other people who will wait years before they get any sort of indication that they have a connection to someone on the other side. Yeah, my, my experience, uh, which may, may not be like most, is that in subsequent years, um, and I, I, 
at, at one point in time, because I'm always questioning myself, you know, is, can this be true or is this just the operation of my brain or whatever? And like I mentioned, I, I was skeptical and did a lot of research in my day job and uh, negotiating with business titans uh, who are as skilled at illusion and sleight of hand as anybody I've met. Uh, so my, my skepticism got the better of me and I contacted another medium and I did some vetting and research and it's uh, an individual who has a international reputation. And so I just, uh, I called him and of course I did, didn't tell him anything about myself or, or especially about a need or anything. We just started and all of a sudden there's Anita and she's like pushed all the other potential spiritual communicants to the side and just almost like resuming where we left off our last conversation through Mary Jo. And so that she would in future calls, she would just appear immediately and the psychics so they didn't see that happen that often, uh, that there was such such a strong connection like that. And that just reinforced my my thinking. What we um, what we noted about that was in seeing a different psychic medium, what was going on with the first one, Mary Jo, was absolutely confirmed. Martin Sawa, we have so enjoyed our hour with you, and I can't believe it's already up. We, uh, there's much more to tell, many more great stories in your book, so please tell us that you will come back and visit us again. Well, I'd love to, and thanks again, uh, Suzanne and Gary and Benny, for having me on. I really enjoyed it, and being able to share my stories with your listeners, and maybe there's some kernels that will help them on their individual road to success. No doubt about that, especially if they read your wonderful book, which again is called The Other Side of Success, Money and Meaning in the Golden State, a memoir by Martin Sawa. Martin, thanks again so much. We will absolutely have you back. In the meantime, Suzanne. Next up is Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience and American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Stay tuned whenever possible to AM 1150 and have a great weekend, everyone.